We all watched this week on the news about an unthinkable tragedy that struck in Orlando, Florida. In the early morning hours on June 12th, gunfire ripped through human flesh and blood and took the lives of 49 people. 49 people who got loved, 49 people with family and friends who are left to pick up the pieces of their loss and pain. 48 of them were victims of a shooter, uh, and the shooter himself is a victim of oppression and hatred. One man took those lives, and each of these persons is a person that God loves, for whom Christ died, regardless of what other Christians may or may not be saying about the people who are gathered in that nightclub. The attack on a gay nightclub is never something that God celebrates or wants. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You pray. And I'm going to ask that we join together and we take our faith and our hope and our love and we, we build a 1,597-mile bridge to the people of Orlando. So would you join me in that? Father, what do we say in the face of such hatred and loss and grief and pain? We lift up to you each mom who lost a son, each father who lost a daughter, each friend who lost a friend. Every bullet wound, every tear, every funeral this week, every bit of this tragedy you know. And you know it because you know the pain of searing loss. God, in times like this, we can look around and feel like there's no hope to overcome the violence and hatred in our world. But it's looked like this before. It looked like this at the cross. And what we learned is that hate doesn't win, that your love wins. These are your children, and we pray that you would do what only you can do. We pray that you would give grace, that somehow you would lead to forgiveness, that in impossible times we see hope, and for those that are hurting, we ask for your healing. Let your followers around Orlando, let them demonstrate nothing besides the kind of kingdom love and kingdom sacrifice that we see in Jesus. We pray that your vision in their lives would be on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, you can grab your seat. Um, all right, two final things. One, um, we've referred to this book called Reconciled by John Paul Lederach a few times in this Flesh and Blood series that we're finishing up today. We have some copies of these. We ordered some, and they're out at the Media Center. Uh, so if you'd like to pick it up, you can do that after the service. About 20 copies left, so you're not going to want to waste your time at that, okay? Um, all right, Greg and Paul, would you come up? Why don't you guys welcome these, our teaching and senior pastor, as they share with us about Flesh and Blood. I'm going to skip. Thank you very much. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Hold it, hold it, hold it. I want to say, Happy Father's Day, fathers. Happy Father's. It's like um, they always celebrate Mother's Day, but last I checked, guys have a little bit to do with having children, don't they? A little bit? So all the dads in the house say, Yay, us! Yay, us! No, say it like you're proud of being on us. Yay, us! Yay, us! <laughs> Okay, happy Father's Day to you. By the way, uh, my band, NDY, uh, we don't look anything like the picture you just saw. <laughs> those aren't, I'm the only member that was up there. I, I don't know who those guys, I, who are those guys? <laughs> and who, whoever got those outfits, they, they, they are, that'd be the best, if you thought that was actually my band, that'd be the best reason not to come. But we are way cooler than that, we dress way cooler than that, and we know how to rock a house. So come on down and join us this Friday. All right. <laughs> Well, get us. 
So uh, we're ending this series we've been on of reconciliation, and uh, we're going to be talking about race. This is, I, I, I sense that this is, as I'm preparing this message and praying over it, I just, sometimes I get to say it's a sense of gravitas or importance. God's highlighting, highlighting this. This has always been a front burner issue for us, but um, I just have a sense that this is really important to pay attention to now. Because we're going to be turning a corner on something. That's, I'm not a prof, prophesying that, but although maybe I am. But I am just saying this is what it feels like. This is so vitally important, and it's so vitally difficult. Um, so we're entitling this message, Tearing Down the Tower. Referring to the Tower of Babel, and I'll get to that in a little bit. I'll start with this. I, I don't know if it's because my dad was really progressive on this issue. I didn't realize he was progressive until I got a little older, and he was unusual on this. Uh, or maybe it's just that, you know, I didn't grow up in the Bible Belt. I grew up in the North. I don't know why. But from the get-go, um, I, I always assume that people who follow Jesus, it's part of the definition of being a follower of Jesus, is that uh, you are a peacemaker and that you are against people being oppressed and against racial divides and are wor- working for uh, you know, rec- racial reconciliation. That was just a given for me even before I found it in the Bible. I, turned, I, wasn't, I learned that that isn't a given for everybody. But uh, two months after we started the, the, this church, almost 25 years ago, or 24, how old, old is this church? 24. I'm not good with dates. Or anything. Okay, so, <laughs> but I, two months into the church, I gave this message on uh, racial reconciliation. The first message that was given uh, to Woodland Hills on racial reconciliation. And it was part of a Christmas series on peace. And I saw peace, and I thought racial reconciliation. It turns out not everyone identifies peace with racial reconciliation. But anyways, I thought that if you just say everyone's invited, everyone's going to feel invited. If you just say that the kingdom is about reconciling all people groups and, and you know, that how, how wrong it is for groups to be divided and how racism is wrong, I thought that people of all different varieties would show up. Say, welcome, we welcome all varieties of human beings uh, that all varieties would start showing up. It didn't happen. I was surprised. I now see that there's a lot I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. I had a lot of good information in my head, but there's a whole lot of things going on in the world, in America, throughout history, that have put up walls that I wasn't aware of. I only really began to become aware of these walls um, a year or two after that first sermon. Um, It was was during the time where uh, the O.J. Simpson trial. And as some of you who are old enough may recall, um, almost 80% of African Americans thought that there's probable cause for doubt on O.J.'s guilt. Whereas over 80% of whites said there is no probable doubt, Uh, the guy's guilty. So it's one of these moments that happens now and then in our culture where something exposes that there's this wide divide uh, and, and how folks see the world and how they interpret the world or how they interpret things. I, I was talking to this uh, black friend of mine at this time, and I was really curious because I am a white guy, you may have noticed, and I could not understand how anyone could think that he w- was innocent. Uh, my black friend thought there's a, it's like a probable cause to th- think that, to doubt that he's guilty. Not that he can prove his innocence, but 
you can't prove he's guilty. And, and so I asked, and I, not aggressively, I just asked, how do you see it that way? I, I'm really baffled by this. And he said to me, uh, can I ask you a question, Greg? How many times growing up did you see your father get randomly pulled over? Uh, how many times did you see him, uh, for no good reason, get patted down and searched? Or even, how many times did you see your father take a hit from an officer who tells you you have an uppity attitude? And, uh, and if, uh, just because you questioned something he said. And I said, well, actually, I've never witnessed that. And he said, I grew up with that. And I grew up with my father telling me I was learning how to drive. Make sure you always keep your hands right on, on, on the wheel, uh, steering wheel. Don't reach for anything. Uh, don't look the officer in the eye. Keep your voice very, very low. Because violating any one of those things can, well, bad things can happen. And so he, what he said was, if you grow up with white officers doing this to your dad all the time, and witnessing your father's rage afterwards uh, because there was no reason for it, um, then it's not hard for you to doubt the word of a racist white cop. Um, whereas for me and folks who have backgrounds like my, my, myself, it's not hard, at all inconceivable to think that a racist white cop would plant evidence that would indict uh, a celebrity, a black celebrity. And I said, it sounds like you live in a different world than me. And he says, in some respects, I do. I do. Um, given his background, given his upbringing, given things that ha has happened to him, uh, it, it's not at all surprising that it, or, or inconceivable that a cop would do that. that folks like that, that, like my friend, they are also not all that shocked when they see these police videos of white police officers shooting unarmed black people, especially black men. Uh, I'm shocked by it because I don't live in that world. And I wouldn't know about that world uh, before the videos and stuff started coming out if I hadn't had this kind of relationship. He said this isn't also at all surprising to him and to folks that are, you know, share his slice of the world. Um, there's glad that's now getting out there and shocking everybody. He says this, it's not like this has started two years ago. Uh, this, this is what we grow up in. It's just that now you get a little window into our, our, our reality. And... Um, that's not to say that he thinks or I think that most police officers are unfair or racist, whatever. Most aren't. At least they're not intentionally that way. But we're just seeing a slice of the world that we white folks uh, hadn't seen before or hadn't seen much of, and so he didn't know how prevalent it was. The thing is this. This is, this is, what, this is what makes um, racial reconciliation difficult to work through. That's why saying that you're in favor of diversity doesn't just create that reality. The thing is this, our, in our fallen nature, we all tend to think that our map is the territory. We interpret the world through a map, and that map is formed through the experiences we go through, through our upbringing, maybe some through our education, um, through our personalities, uh, through the history of what's happened to our ethnicities, at the hands of others, and that forms a way of interpreting the world as a grid. And we naturally tend to assume that the way we see the world is the way the world actually is. We're not even aware that we interpret things. We, we, we just do it. But whatever we're used to, we interpret through that grid. And the farther apart maps are, and on race matters in America, they can be very far apart. But the farther apart two maps are, 
uh, the more difficult it is to understand one another. So some of you married folks may know a thing about that. Uh, and uh, the more you have to work at getting on the inside of each other's maps, that's what communication is all about. The more you have to be willing to set aside your own map and learn from this other map. The more you have to be willing to let that other map stretch your own map and, and wake you up. And so that, that can be a difficult thing. But the maps are different. Like, for example, if I right now say, uh, America is the land of equal opportunity where anybody can become anything. And a good percentage of white people would say, yes, yeah, yeah, it's true. But I bet a good percentage of non-white folks would say, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, it ain't quite that way. Because in the world of a white person, that is more true. Whereas in the world of non-whites, that's much less true. And we interpret all, everything through that lens. Reconciliation is only, racial reconciliation is only possible if we are able and willing to work at getting in on the inside of each other's maps. And to believe those maps, to trust those maps. Not distrust people because they see the world different from you, but to rather trust them and to learn from that. So let me set up the challenge of reconciliation within a biblical context, all right? God in the beginning created humanity, one race of people. There's one race of people. There still is only one race of people. This idea of races within the race, that is a social construct that was invented by white Europeans during the colonial period to justify dominating other people, uh, massacring Native Americans, and importing uh, African slaves. And so we created this idea of race uh, so we wouldn't have to feel like we're killing our own or mistreating our own. But it's a social construct. The truth is that there's one race, and every member of that race is made in the image of God. Uh, and Amen. that has not changed. And the truth is we're supposed to treat each other on the grounds that we're all made in the image of God and have unsurpassable worth. But see, that was true, it held true, the racing always holds true. But the way, the way people began to look, take on different what are called phenotypes, appearances, and, and characteristics, that began, that began with the Tower of Babel. So the humanity was still united in Genesis 11, this is sometime after the flood, and they were all living pretty much in one locale, and they began to work together in a unity to form this idolatrous tower. Um, and they did it, the Bible says, to make a name for themselves. And this tower also has religious connotations to it. So it has the, the sense of we're, we're going to create this giant tower up to the heavens, um, which, which itself symbolizes taking out a form of deity. And um, uh, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and we can show what we can do without God's help, and we can show even that we have our own religion without God's help. So God sees this, and he sees that if this were to be successful, it could possibly derail his whole plans for humanity. So he comes down and passes this judgment, which is that he gives them different languages. So now they can't work together to build this tower. And then people begin to form tribes as they meet others who have their language, because uh, they can understand each other, but they can't understand any of the other groups. And so these tribes get formed, and then they get, the Bible says, they get scattered throughout the world. They migrate all over the place. And depending on where they migrate, depending on the climate there and the environment there, they, they adapt to it. And that's what begins to create uh, this different appearance. So folks that are living in very sunny, hot climates develop darker skin as they need the more pigment to uh, not, not get burned by the sun. Uh, folks in the far north or far south are light-skinned because they don't need that. Um, and, and so we, 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 because we're isolated from one another, the rich gene pool of the human race begins to self-select and it forms its own look and its own culture and all of that, that was to prevent humanity from building this tower. 
Now, it, that was intended as a provisional judgment. That is, this wasn't to be the case forever. It was just a temporary stopgap to get to the point where God could do what he want, 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 always dreamed of doing, and that is to reunite the human race. It was a provisional thing. So all throughout the Old Testament, you find God dreaming this dream of all people coming together, once again, uh, laying down their arms, coming together under his loving lordship. Now, that dream of God was fulfilled, and the curse of Babel was ended when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, it says this in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, for he, referring to Jesus Christ, is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups. Now, Paul is uh, giving this truth from a Jewish perspective, and from a Jewish perspective, the most fundamental divide among humans was, was between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. But in reconciling that group, all other divisions of humanity are covered as well. He says, so he is our peace, and his flesh he has made both groups into one, and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, I love this phrase, one new humanity in place of the two. There's no longer two, there's one. Thus making peace that he might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting Amen. to death that hostility through it. Praise God. Amen. So on the cross, all the walls that Babel had set up are torn down. Uh, all the hostility that has been installed since Babel has been put to death. The divisions since Babel have been reconciled. And now once again, it's clear there's one new humanity in Christ Jesus. One new humanity. All that has been accomplished on the cross. So on the cross, the walls, the hostility, the reconciliation has happened. Uh, there's a new humanity. On the cross, God has reversed Babel. That's why, by the way, in Acts 2, when the Spirit is poured out upon the church, the birthday of the church, um, all the people hear the disciples speaking in different language. The disciples start speaking in different languages, but the people hear them in their own language. And there's 16 different countries that are listed there. But they all hear it in their own language. And what the Lord is symbolizing with that, this isn't just a cool trick. You know, it has a meaning to it. God is saying that now that Christ has, in principle, destroyed all divisions, and the Spirit is being poured out, now, wherever the Spirit is moving, you'll find people... Reversing Babel. Wherever the Spirit is moving, you'll find people understanding one another. Wherever you, you, the Spirit is moving, you'll find people who were apart or estranged being brought together again. It's all done by the power of God. Wherever the Spirit of God is present, you'll see Babel being reversed. So when, when you hear people say stuff like, you know, it's not natural for, for couples uh, from different races to, to get married. Remind yourself that they're just babbling. <laughs> they're babbling. Or... or when experts come along and say, well, you know, the best way to grow a church is to make it homogenous. You're babbling. You're babbling. Uh, that's that's counter-kingdom. Um, but our job, then, is to stop babbling. <laughs> our job is to manifest everything Jesus died for. And so the cross is one big stop babbling. Stop acting as though there's still a hostility between you. Acting as though there's a, there's... The walls have not been torn down, that you haven't been reconciled, that you're not part of one new human race. Our job is to think, speak, and interact with other people, manifesting the truth of the cross. Amen? The, the truth Amen. of the cross. And to have no part of babbling. And think about this. I remember when this first hit me, it just, this is what put it on the front burner for me. Um, that means that Jesus died for several things, but one of them was so his church would stop babbling. One of them is so that his church would manifest the truth that on the cross, the walls have come down, the divisions have ended, 
Uh, and we are one new human race uh, in, in Christ Jesus. That makes, that makes this issue, racial reconciliation, it's not a little addendum thing, an optional thing, an occasional thing to think about or hope for or pray for. No, this is right up there in importance with the, the atonement. It's up, right up there with the forgiveness of sins. That means this is a non-negotiable. That means this is a front burner issue. Uh, think, think of this. What would, what would it be like for a church to decide not to, they're not going to preach on the forgiveness of sins anymore? Even though Jesus died for it, it's kind of inconvenient. It can ruffle feathers. You might lose some of the congregation. You know, it's just too inconvenient. Wouldn't we cry out heresy? That, that, Jesus died for that, and to, for you to refuse to put that into practice is heresy. For you to refuse not to address it is, is heresy. Well, how can we not say the same thing about racial reconciliation? Jesus shed blood for that. This, that means this is supremely important. It's a non-negotiable, it's a gotta happen kind of thing. We gotta reverse battle. We gotta live in a way that demonstrates that we, we, we don't buy into the walls, we don't buy into division, we don't buy into hostility, we don't buy into different races. No, there's one new, new humanity in Jesus Christ. And our job then is to manifest that truth in a world that doesn't yet manifest that truth. And it's non-negotiable. It's gotta happen. Amen. Now that, that that's always easier said than done. I thought about just saying it, it would happen. It, it's way harder than that. So we've been on a journey. It's a journey of learning. It's a, it's a uh, journey of learning that often has we've, what we've learned from is our own mistakes. And so I always say to people, I really hope God grades on the basis of sincerity of heart and effort, not results. Uh, but to tell us a little bit about that story, the journey, I'd like to once again have you welcome Dr. Sir Paul Eddy. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Greg's right. This is a journey. It's a long journey. It's a complex journey. It's an often difficult journey. And it is a beautifully kingdom journey. And this is a journey that, that we are on as a church, every church who gets Ephesians 2, who sees that this is something Jesus has died for. I don't know how you don't become part of the journey. But let's remember, this has not just been... This is a 2,000-year-old journey now. This journey started literally within weeks of Jesus launching his church. As soon as the message of the gospel went from the Jews into the world of the Gentiles, instantly there was ethnic diversity and soon followed by ethnic tension. If you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you see that one of the most fundamental social points of conflict is the Jew-Gentile divide. It's ethnic dissension. Here at Woodland Hills, we've been on this journey for 24 years because we've been a church for 24 years. I want to say two things about this kind of journey and then just visit with you just a couple of the key moments as I look back over these 24 years where I see God working amongst us to encourage us and challenge us on this journey. Two things about this journey. It's a long, long journey. We don't measure this journey in terms of days or weeks or months. If it's been 2,000 years for the Church of Jesus Christ... In 24 years for our church, it's the kind of journey that there's moments when you feel like it's one step forward, half a step back, three steps forward, two steps back. There's seasons where you see real progress and others where you go, what are we doing? And I think what we have to remember is in this kind of a journey, at the end of any particular day, we have to stop and remember that our calling of God is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience. We keep on walking together. 
because we're called to this journey. Secondly, every one of us has a role to play on this journey. You might have been around Woodland for a long time with us on this one. If so, you might have seen just how far God's brought us. There might be days where you're carrying the torch with passion for this. Others where the the long journey has brought weariness and fatigue. For sure that happens in long journeys. But we need your voice, if you've been around here, to help us remember God has brought us somewhere on this journey. It might be that you've not been around Woodland that long. You might come into a a body like this and look around and say, when are we going to start the journey? Not knowing the history and from where God's brought us. But we need your voice to remind us that fresh eyes and new blood can see where God's going to take us, and we've got to keep moving. We can never settle and just rest because of where God's brought us. In the end, every one of us has to be part of this journey as we encourage and challenge and inspire and support each other to keep on moving, always under the banner of self-sacrificial agape love, never with self-righteous judgment. Amen? Amen. Amen. Just a few, few of the things that I see as I look back in, in my 20-some years here, seeing God getting our attention on this. It did start in, in month number two. We, this church was planted in October 92. Two months later, a Christmas sermon, Greg felt compelled to weave racial reconciliation into the message of Christmas peace. That wasn't what everyone expected in that church. Greg tells me that at that point, there was one person of color in the 300 people of Woodland Hills Church. But what God impressed on Greg that day got Greg's attention, and through that first sermon, it began to get our attention as well. It was just six months later, the summer of 93, when Greg says he began to sense three words were being spoken to him by God. He considers it a a, a prophetic message from God to him for this church. And it was these three words, face the city, face the city. And that was not a necessarily easy word to hear because when Woodland Hills Church was planted six months earlier, the whole plan was to get to Woodbury, which was then one of the fastest growing suburbs in the nation, and quite affluent place to plant a church. Why wouldn't you? All of a sudden, Greg here has faced the city, and he comes, he starts to process that with the pastoral team. And after a while, it began to dawn on us that what we had planned and what God had planned for us were two very different things. Instead of the next move being to Woodbury, the next move was to Harding High School as we began to push closer towards the urban context as we started to hear what is God calling us to. 1995, a couple years later, another important moment in our journey when we hired our first full-time worship pastor, Norm Blagman. Amen. Norm, beautiful brother. For those of you who weren't here up until a couple of years ago, Norm was with us as our worship pastor for 18 years. Just a beautiful African-American brother in Christ who brought to this congregation a diversity of culture and music and worship that we had never known before. But I'll tell you one thing Norm brought that many of you don't know. And that's, I can't count the number of pastors' meetings over those 18 years when Norm, in the midst of us talking about future vision and calling, would stop us and say, what kind of church are we? Those words, you'd always... And what he meant by that was, what kind of church is God calling us to be? Always calling us back to remember that if we're called to face the city, if we're called to be an Ephesians 2 church, we've got to be a church that's constantly asking the question, how do we not feed into the most segregated hour in America, which is the Sunday morning worship hour? Sociologists have shown that that hour is when most people go to places of homogeneity, people that look and sound and talk like them. 
not being the Ephesian true church that breaks down divisions, creating one new humanity. Norm reminded us about that on a constant basis. That led, a couple years later, 1998, to a vision given to our executive pastor, Janice Rowling. This vision was a powerful, powerful word of God to us. As we began to pray around and discern this vision, it became pretty clear to us what it was. She saw a bridge. And on one side of the bridge was what looked to her to be kind of an urban context. On the other bridge, a more suburban context. And as we prayed around this vision together, we realized that God was calling us as Wood on the Hills really to be a living bridge between these two worlds. It's one thing to have a vision and one thing to actually begin to live it out. Two years later, the year 2000, the turn of the millennium, God, through a series of miracles, had us land in this building here, of all places, on the very street, Larpenter Avenue, that is the border between St. Paul and the first ring suburb of Maplewood. God planted us in the very place where we could begin to live out this vision of being a bridge. That year, the turn of the millennium, 2000, began a season, I would say, of learning for us. God began to connect us with people who could actually help us live into this bridge vision. One of those people, uh, beautiful brother in Christ, Ephraim Smith. Man, Ephraim. <laughs> Man, Ephraim during those years came and he would share his heart with us from the pulpit. Just this African-American brother with his gift for preaching just inspired us, challenged us to step into this vision. It wasn't long after that that uh, we were having to have the privilege of financially partnering with Ephraim as he was called by God to plant a church in North Minneapolis, the Sanctuary Covenant Church. Greg will say a little bit more about Sanctuary in a minute. A lot of things happened during those early years of the, of the turn of the millennium. I, I remember just so much learning going on for us as a congregation, as a staff, as pastors. I remember sitting down in a... a classroom in the south end of our building, and for the first time in my life, hearing a kingdom vision around concepts like white privilege and systemic racism. I grew up in a world of individualism where I thought if a couple of people were okay, that was, that was reconciliation, not realizing the dimensions that systemic things can bring to this conversation. I'll never forget, you know, some of the lessons were, were encouraging and inspiring, some were just painful. Never forget the uh, time we had a staff party. And we, some of us who planned the party, picked as a theme for the party the 50s. Well, that 50s theme party became the context for a, a tough conversation. As some of our then African-American staff reminded the white folk at that party that while the 50s might have been a, a time of the good, thinking back to the good old days for us, in the pre-Civil Rights 1950s and the Jim Crow South 1950s, that was anything but good old days. Mm. We learned a lot together during those years. By 2004, well, that was an interesting year in a number of ways. Greg preached the cross and the sword and ran off half of our church. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Woo! Greg. <laughs> we still celebrate that. <laughs> Other things happened in 2004 as well. In that year, we invited Brenda Seltzer McNeil to come and partner with us. We had been having some diversity trainings and reconciliation trainings that were a day or maybe a week. We realized we needed a long-term process here. So Brenda came, a, a nationally known consultant on these things from Chicago, and she spent three years helping us think through in a more intentional way these kinds of questions. Brenda brought frequent messages to us from the pulpit on this topic. 
I'll never forget her, her message on, on, on the Samaritan woman on John 4. Just a powerful moment. She helped us walk through together as a church an entire assessment of our church on cultural diversity and racial issues. And she created a, a, a team during that season called the Bridge Crew, brought together over a dozen people at Woodland Hills with a passion for this and a commitment to help our church raise the water table, raise the level on understanding around these issues. 2008 came, not long after that. And our church, like many others, began to feel the effects of the Great Recession. God used that season to wake us up to another dimension of our bridge calling. If you're going to really be a bridge, a place that connects people across suburban and urban worlds, then it's not only racial ethnic issues we have to talk about, one has to talk about socioeconomic divides, economic disparity, poverty. God began to raise our awareness of that, and through the, one of the initiatives of the bridge crew, put us into a season called Compassion by Command. It was 2009 and 2010 when first our staff and then the entire church went through a multi-week process of having small group discussions, a sermon series, eventually a, a multi-church conference held here on how we can begin to press into asking questions about poverty and homelessness and economic disparity and how we as a church can be part of the bridging of that context as well. Those conversations that year in 2010 led to us recognizing we could open our doors. This building sits empty, at least did back in the day, for a lot of the week, and we began to open our doors to other partner organizations that cared about resourcing under-resourced people in our community. And so to this day, we've, at this point, at least we've got uh, a food shelf. We've got a daycare center. We've got job skills training program. We, have, we actually house one of Ramsey County's rapid rehousing units here that helps people on the verge of homelessness not have to step over that line. Proactive prevent, preventative measures. This has been some of the many, many things God has done in and amongst us on this journey. But this journey is not over. Man, we are in ways just starting. Amen? Amen. Greg, tell us about All the right. future. It has been an interesting educational uh, endeavor. Uh, and while we have a long way to go, we have made some progress. And this is a sign of the progress. Uh, we're not in a number counting, but it, I, it is significant that uh, when the church first started, as Paul mentioned, we, we were, well, I, the first service, there was one person of color, and maybe by the end of that year, there's two. Uh, less than 1% of our congregation was non-white. Now here we are 24 years later, and uh, the last census we had was that 22% of our congregation is non-white. Uh, and amen. That's, that is, thank God for that. Um, and I, got, I have to say that, that I, I, I want to express on behalf of all the leadership and I hope all the congregation that I'm so happy that non-white people, you, you folks who are not Caucasian, are here uh, and have, have become part of this. I, I wasn't aware of it. 24 years ago, but now I'm aware that, that my whiteness means something, and white dominance means something, and so it means something when a person who is of other ethnicity decides to join that church. Uh, it takes courage. It, stuff I don't have to think about ever, you know, I, what do people think of my color? I, I, it never occurs to me, but that's on the table for people of color to come here. Do, do these guys get it at all? Do they have a clue? You know, it, it, we're asking some trust, and... Uh, Trust when for a long while has not been any evidence that we, we do get it. And I suspect we still, we, we, white leadership, don't fully get it. 
And we're, we're still on this journey. But here, here, I'll just say two things about what is necessary for us to go on and to improve at be, being a congregation that manifests what Jesus died for when it comes to this one new humanity. One is that I don't believe this can go forward without the members of the body uh, entering, entering into actual relationships with people who are of a different ethnicity. Um, here, here's the thing. If you've ever taken racial training uh, stuff out in the secular environment, what you normally get, and I've been through to a number of them, what you normally get is they talk in general about how whites should relate to blacks in general or Asians or Latino, Native American, whatever. But it's general. And when you ask a general question, how do we get along, you'll get a general answer as a policy. Here's the policy on this. And the policy can't change a heart, can't change anyone's inner perception. What it can do is, is, is uh, you know, determine behavior. Here's, here's how you get along, which means the most you'll take away from it is how to tolerate one another. A policy that helps you tolerate one another. Say this, don't say this, do this, don't do that. Uh, and so everything that is not conforming with that just goes into hiding. And now people just kind of walk on eggshells and walk around one another. You know, it's like, well, see, Jesus didn't die to give us a policy on how to tolerate each other. No, he died to create one new humanity where we actually love one another. And it, so we're, if we're actually going to be reconciled, that has to happen person to person. Actually be reconciled. Um, only an actual relationship can get you on the inside of the other person's map and let them get outside of your map so you actually begin to understand one another and see the world through the other person's eyes. Uh, we all need actual relationships. Now, what that means, among other things, is that it means that you're going to have to go out of your way or it's likely that you're going to have to go out of your way to get into a relationship like that. Uh, sadly, it is the case in this fallen world that birds of a feather tend to flock together. Uh, it's easier, it's more convenient to hang out with people who share your map, share your culture, share your habits, like the same kind of food as you, like the same kind of music as you, maybe you have the same kind of political views as you, uh, or whatever. But uh, it means you're going to have to go out of, your, uh, out of your way to form these relationships. It also means that we're going to have to go deeper in these relationships than just small talk. They have to be forged in trust and honesty and love. Um, where you can say the truth as you see it and hear the other person's perspective on truth as they see it. And maybe what they say is going to push you back a little bit, stretch you a little bit, maybe even confront some things. So we have to be willing to put down uh, getting life from our map, which we shouldn't be getting life from anyways, and, and admit that our perspective is only our perspective and it's myopic. And hear what the other person has to say. I, I am so blessed to have, uh, as an increasingly good friend, uh, the African-American pastor of Covenant Sanctuary Church, Dennis Edwards. Uh, I just know I need mentoring on this. Uh, and I need accountability on this. And so uh, we, we've gotten together and talked everything from theology to lately, it's been this issue. And uh, it's, he, he sometimes points things out that I didn't realize. For example, uh, this last week we were meeting and... and uh, uh, I mentioned off the cuff, I don't even know what I was talking about, but I mentioned, yes, it's important that we all come to this table as equals. And he said, well, Greg, that would be nice, but I think I disagree with you. We come to this table, but the table's already been set for us, and it's, it's privileged you over me. So that's the starting point. Now, the goal is to, co to, to be in conversation as equals, but we have first got to talk through all the ways that that is not yet true before you can overcome them. And at first, I didn't know quite what he was referring to. Um, but see, if I'm getting my life from Christ, I don't have to get it from being right or having my map be a perfect map or anything like that. And it frees me then to be able to wonder about his map. 
that led to his observation about this, the, this conversation. And uh, after he shared his map with me, I completely agreed with him. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's when we allow others to speak into our map that we, it, it, it gets stretched and we're further down the road in reconciliation. To do this, you're going to have to be able to receive and give grace. Because for sure, if you're going significantly into each other's map, there'll be points where you're going to get it wrong. And it'll say something that might be offensive uh, and, and uh, confrontational. And so we need to extend to each other grace in this. And the final thing is, is that it will require warfare. Spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers... Uh, oh, I got it right. Against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The principalities and powers have been playing us off against each other, laughing all the way since Babel. Um, so when we enter into these conversations, these reconciling conversations, where we're seeking to manifest all that Jesus died for, we've got to be aware that we have an enemy, but it's not the other person. It's not any other person. It's the powers that are trying to get us to see other people as the enemy. And as, as we discuss matters, we should do it with, a, the way we fight the powers is by refusing to be played by them. The way we fight the powers is by refusing to, not love the other, to ever not love the other person, even when it's maybe very, very difficult. And so kingdom people should enter into these sometimes difficult conversations knowing and committing to keep on knowing that the other person is not the enemy. In fact, you are together fighting for each other. You're each trying to manifest, to help the other person, help the two of you manifest what Jesus died for, the reconciliation and one new humanity. And so agree at the start that however difficult this be, it is, you're not going to bail. You're not going to decide to close the door on this. Rather, you're going to stick together, fight the enemy who's trying to divide you from one another. But individual relationships forged in this way are absolutely vital, absolutely vital. Because what Jesus died for was not hypothetical reconciliation. He wants actual reconciliation, which requires actual people discussing in love actual problems uh, and coming together in that way. Second thing is, is, is this. Um, as important as it is for individuals uh, to work on reconciliation, the second, it's that important for churches to work on reconciliation, the bodies to work. It's important that congregations develop relationships with congregations of people who look significantly different than they do. I, I think just, just as it's impossible to manifest actual reconciliation unless you're working with actual people, so also a congregation can't manifest the one new humanity unless they're operating with other congregations. And so for this reason, Dennis and I have uh, kind of asked the question, what would it look like for us to partner? I know that I need him. Uh, even if I get something one moment, if I'm not having regular relationships with people of color, I'll backslide. I, I, I'll just carry my, pick up my white map again. Um, but in, in, in forging an actual unity with another, uh, you served each other by helping better manifest what Jesus died for regarding reconciliation. So it, it started with, with uh, Dennis and I just kind of talking. Now, when we first started, talk, started talking about this, we thought, hey, let's just have a joint service together. But then we realized to do that would celebrate something that is not yet real. It would be a, a, you know, become a token kind of a thing. We want reality. And so we were exploring ways of, of doing this. One would be to have, the next step, have, have, what have a forum. Kind of introduce Dennis to you guys. And so this Tuesday, you are invited and encouraged to attend this forum Q&A that Dennis and I are having. We'll, we'll discuss um, 
some, some matters uh, pertaining to race up front. And one thing you can be rest assured of with him and I, uh, it, it's very, it will be very real. We're really honest with each other. Um, and then we'll take questions that you guys might have about a, a distinctly kingdom way of dealing with race issues. So I encourage you to attend that. Uh, we talked about ha having our staff at some point get together and start kind of sharing some stuff as staff. Uh, we'll uh, we want to exchange pulpits. And none of this is written in stone yet, but I'll sometimes preach over there and he'll preach over here. Uh, then we thought it would be great to have our worship teams exchange, have their worship team over here and our, ours goes over there. And then we thought in time it will be appropriate to have a joint service. And then have uh, joint uh, ministry together, do missions projects together, and have our people get to know their people and their people get to know our people. Does that sound like fun? Yeah. It is. That's how to do it. That's how to do it. So we, we're, we're now going to um, take communion and how appropriate. Uh, when we have communion, we are, we are celebrating, committing to everything Jesus died for. And on this weekend, the main thing we're highlighting, of course, is our togetherness in the body of Christ and our commitment to carrying this out in this world. Uh, so we'll go to a time of worship, and when you feel it's appropriate, you can take the communion. Um, you can go with a friend if you want, or you can take it alone. But I want us, you know, this is celebrating a covenant. Our, we know what he did for us, created one new humanity. During this time, let's commit to carrying that out and to go, go out of our way to do that, uh, that he could be glorified in this. So in light of what Jesus has done for us, in light of the call that's on our life, I encourage us now to go out into a very divided world and bring peace, bring reconciliation, be a light in the middle of darkness, and be used by God to manifest the beauty of all that Jesus has done, including reconciliation with all people. Keep your radar open. You've got to go out of your way to make this happen, but it's worth it. God bless you guys. Just see you next week.